welcome to episode 11 of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin, episode 11 or 1-1, you might want to call it. 1-1. <laughs> How are you, Matt? How are things as we head towards the latter half of May? Yeah, it's funny because like April went by so slow, I think, but May is going by so fast. And we're a few weeks away from Calcite San Bernardino being done with our spring quarter. Uh, we're ending the second week of June. Uh, things in California right now, um, we have beaches that have been reopened, especially in Los Angeles County. Uh, we've also had 22 counties in California that are being permitted to start reopening their restaurants and in their dining rooms and retail stores, but of course with uh, modifications. So some positives. Um, our governor unveiled, though, on a you know not so good note. But I think we all kind of assumed this was going to happen. So the the newest budget proposal for next year for California um, it's uh, has significant budget cuts to education, pensions, and state worker pay cuts. And I think in total, the projected budget deficits in California is going to be like fifty four point three billion dollars. So. There's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter going on, a lot of different institutions um, around California. So with the Cal State Universities, that's probably going to be about like a 10% cut to um, our normal funding. Um, so and we might lose out on some of the f uh, summer financial aid as well. But uh, speaking of Cal State Universities, uh, we have no still no official word from Cal State San Bernardino regarding how fall term is going to be. But our CSU chancellor of the 23 Cal States, uh, Timothy White, said that for the most part, the CSUs will be virtual in the fall. Um, so this is actually what he said um, per his statement, and that was that this approach to virtual planning is necessary for many reasons. First and foremost is the health, safety, and welfare of our students, faculty, and staff, and the evolving data surrounding the progression of COVID-19. And that's for the current um, forecast throughout the 2020-21 academic year. So the planning approach is necessary because a course that might begin in a face-to-face -face modality would likely have to be switched to a virtual format during the term if a serious second wave of the pandemic occurs as it's currently forecasted. So um, there might be some hybrid approaches uh, that might happen. So each Cal State is will kind of determine you know, what classes might need to be on campus, but for the most part, the fall semester is going to be online. So we're kind of getting prepped for that. Um, I think a lot of us kind of expected that might happen, but that's where we're at right now. How are things over with you? So Ireland is just about to open back up. And by the time listeners are hearing this podcast, we have, will have begun the phased reopening. But in a university context, due to the sheer size of institutions, it's very much going to be a different beast, I suppose. We are looking at very much a hybrid model. And at my own institution, DCU, I suppose initially there is going to be the focus on the first year undergrads who haven't had any campus experience who haven't had a university experience and who are still need to make that transition from secondary school from high school to third level so they're going to start a little bit earlier than everybody else depending upon results and initially the focus will be on them so 
we were looking at online for other cohorts, a hybrid where where it it's possible. Um, I think labs, but again, it, it's I suppose still in a scenario planning stage. But I think for first semester there is a recognition that we're not going to have large groups of students on campus, in the library, in lecture theatres. A lot of it will be done online with a view to, as we move, I suppose, through the semester and into 2021, hopefully having more and more students return to campus. But as you just said, Matt, that really depends on if there is a second wave and and what that might look like. So really, they're they're trying to and it sounds like this is what's going on at your institution, allow for a, a great deal of flexibility, depending on what the happens, that they can respond accordingly. So. By the time I talk to you, you know, next in our next episode, I think Ireland will be further along. And and I think in terms of planning, DCU will be further along. But um, we know certainly that the first semester of 2020-2021 will not look anything like our previous academic years certainly looked. Oh, yeah, it's gonna be so different, uh, but we will roll with it. But that's looking to the future. If we talk about right now, listeners can't see, but you got a haircut. I did a home haircut. It had to happen when they announced the phase rollout and it was going to be July. I got to a point where I I didn't know if I was going to be able to get through the front door of my apartment. My hair was getting to be that big. So home haircut, happy with it. Very, very pleased with uh, how it it turned out. Um, so <laughs> there have been, there's a great po- poster up uh, in Dublin, actually, at the moment in one of the barber shops, which is um, re- reopening in July to help you rectify those mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks pretty good. Looks pretty good. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm trying to take some inspiration from you and, and from others who have been doing the the home hair care for some time and 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 doing it well. I I really was worried when I when undertaking it ha- what the results would be. So happy to hear that uh, at least from a distance of seven or eight thousand miles, it looks all right. Well, mine's pretty easy. I just buzz cut i mean it's like uh i used to i've been doing this for years now but i originally did it because i was just lazy and i didn't want to have to gel my hair so i just was just buzz cutting the whole thing but now i have to kind of do it because i'm losing my hair so (laughs) if i let it grow out there'll only be certain parts that grow out, and it just looks so odd so that that's my reasons Oh, no, I think I think it's too too mad. I mean, it, it's been that way since I met you, and it uh, it works. Can you believe that's coming up on a year? That's that's crazy. So uh, Charlie Nutt, you know, I know you saw he posted on his Facebook the first video we ever did in Belgium, uh, where we kind of uh, talked about what Nakata means means to us, and you know, made the Titanic reference, and like it feels like it was a long time ago. But it's still only been less than a year that we've met and we started making that made that video. So crazy how time flies. 
Yeah, I think this year has been especially interesting in terms of timelines because in some ways, sure, it, it seems a while ago, but in other ways, it just because possibly because it was so cemented and because I have I've kind of been traveling here, there and everywhere. I changed jobs and then we had this current COVID situation because that is a fixed moment in time. And one of the last fixed things I had in my previous position, that to me just seems like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that that's interesting. But no, I'm, I'm total opposite. I feel like it was like more than a year, like two years ago, and it's been less than a year. <laughs> Perceptions of time. But I do remember when we uh, when it got posted. I remember uh, either like later that day it got posted or the day after that were coming up going like, we didn't know where you guys were going with that video. Uh, when you start talking about Titanic and um, Rose being on the piece of wood with Jack and how does that have to deal with Nakata? And we were getting worried how you were going to answer that. And then we felt it was a perfect answer. So, um, yeah, I think the video came out great. And it was a, it was a nice reminder for, from Charlie. So thank you, Charlie, for posting that. Absolutely. And obviously coming off the back of Nakata's birthday celebrations, Global Advising Week, which I think was a massive success. So kudos to all involved and everyone who participated in the week and all those who planned the week. And I was delighted that we were able to participate in that as well, Matt. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, Still a few of the presentations I need to go back and watch because there was so much. Um, but I'm glad that they had a lot involved in that. A um, lot of great presenters, uh, videos that they had posted, webinars, everything you could want um, and more was there. So really highly suggest that if you can, if you're, uh, you're a member to go back and, and take a look at that. And of course, they have so many things that are coming out with the like Global Connection series that they've been doing. So there's even during this time where maybe we're not necessarily going to conferences right now, or can't go to the um, institutes during the summer. There's so much that that, that can be done online uh, through the Nakata membership. So keep it up. Absolutely. And if you are an Nakata member, you will have received the email with this year's award winners. So check that out and see who the recipients are. And I think we have quite a, a, an interesting episode ahead, Matt. It is... Um, uh, an episode that probably deals with a number of different themes. But maybe before we delve right into those, we can give a, a shout out to Stasia White, who got in touch via LinkedIn to say that she was loving the podcast. So thanks for letting us know. And for anyone out there who is enjoying, we love hearing from you. We also love hearing I suppose ideas that you have maybe for themes that we could cover or topics you'd like us to maybe delve into and that is kind of hearing from listeners is one of the topics that we are going to look at in this episode as well with a question that we got some advisors to discuss right Matt? Yeah so during the time that we were recording for episode 10, we had um, posted on social media and um, asked folks to send in questions that they might have for a panelist. So we had like Megumi and Aaron and Charlie. And so we had this Qualtrics survey um, that we received a lot of questions through. And so I forgot to put an end date on that Qualtrics survey. So there was a question that came in 
after we had done all the recordings and it was a great question. And the question was uh, that was supposed to be asked to the panelists was knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell yourself when you started out in advising? And it's like, oh, that's such a reflection type question. That would have been great. And unfortunately, we couldn't ask our panelists because we had already finished uh, recording our interviews with them. But what we have been doing since episode nine is we've been asking uh, folks to answer questions in like short little clips. So in episode nine, we had asked the, the University of South Dakota um, advisors how they define academic advising. And um, in episode 10, we were asking various questions from what's, what's your best conference takeaway? What's your favorite Nakata memory? What's your first impression of, of Nakata and so forth? And so it's something that we've been wanting to continue in these episodes since episode nine. And so we were like, well, do we need to think of a question or could we actually use this question? So this question actually came in from uh, Dane Zanowski from uh, Temple University, who just might be a future interview guest on our podcast. We shall see. But of course, uh, aside from taking his question, we thought, hey, he could also answer this. So uh, we will be sprinkling out these answers. He will be one of them. But Colin, we have a couple that uh, we've we've asked that we want to start out this uh, this question with, right? Yes, indeed. And Nakata is the global uh, advising community, and that was one of the aims, I suppose, of our podcast was really to bring in people, bring in voices, bring in stories from a truly global network. And that's what we're going to start off with, because we have Suzanne Seeley and Omnia Badge, who are uh, both uh, outside of North America and outside of Europe, from the Middle East and Australia. And they gave really interesting answers to this question. So I think let's hear from them right now. Hi, I'm Suzanne Seeley, and I'm the Senior Manager of Student Advising and Retention at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. If I could go back and give myself one piece of advice when I started my career, it would be that I don't need to know all of the answers. I just need to know the right people. And by that, I mean that it may be very difficult to remember all the details and the ins and outs of a handbook or course advice. But if I'm surrounding myself with colleagues that have that knowledge and connecting with a global advising community, I'm actually able to be better for the students than if I work alone on my own. That is one piece of advice that I've passed on to our new academic advisors here at La Trobe, and that is one thing that we are trying to build into our advising framework. And through a partnership with Gavin Farber at Temple University, we've actually been able to set up an international mentoring program for our new advisors, which has been very helpful as we've reached out to seek innovative ways to support students, but also to let others know what we're doing down here in Australia. It's been fantastic and a great partnership, and this is through Nakata that we've been able to do this. So we, we recognize that we are stronger if we work together, and that's what's so beautiful about this global advising community. Hi, this is Omnia Badr, Senior Academic Advisor at Qatar University. At the start of a career in advising, I believe it is important to educate oneself about student development theories, learning styles and techniques, coaching, counseling techniques and strategies, as well as best practices in academic advising. At the same time, to be fully aware that there are social and cultural factors that influence student success. 
things differ from one context to another. For example, the transition from high school to university, the factors that influence student success in this transition, the skills that the students possess or lack change from one context to another. Another example, first-generation students. Their definition and their skills and their abilities, the issues they face, differ again from one concept to another. My point is best practices in academic advising don't necessarily work in every context. In my opinion, this is essential knowledge that would help and assist every academic advisor in his career. Thank you, Matt and Colin, for inviting me to share my thoughts. Salam from Doha. Wow, so great answers there from, from our two guests. And thank you again for answering that question, knowing what you know now. What would you go back and tell yourself when you started out in advising? And so let's go into our first interview. And so this is with Leander Yazi. And Leander is the chair of Nakata's Native American and Tribal College community, uh, which that community remains committed to one goal, and that's to educate and to engage the global advising community in working to meet the educational needs of Native American, First Nations, and Indigenous students. And that community acts as a resource for educational professionals working with Native American students, particularly those students who are transferring from a tribal college. And this was a great one to have, honestly, Colm, um, because Leander talks about how sometimes, you know, he feels, and you've, I think we've heard this too from, from others, that you might hear that term invisible student or forgotten student. And so he really kind of delves into what that means, but then also how we as advisors can, can make sure that we're doing our part and how institutions can do their part to make sure that we're serving all students. And this kind of reminds me of an article that I was reading on the Nakata website, uh, which you can actually find this on the advising community website for Native American and Tribal College community. And um, this is actually from Mark Belcourt, and that article titles Advising Native American Students in Higher Education. And uh, Mark was a past chair of the then interest group for Native American and Tribal Colleges. And this one was written in 2004, but the article still holds true today. Um, and so the article kind of gives a brief summary of the educational system from like the 19th century to today, and then you know some of the barriers that Native American and Indigenous students faced then and still today. But Mark goes on in the article to mention some of the future outlook, including trends in higher education and ways advisors can help students' needs. And so, you know, after speaking with Leander, um, there's still definitely a lot more to be done, right? But, you know, hopefully bring awareness and things that we can be doing better as well. So. Let's go ahead and let's check out the interview. Let's jump right in. All right, we have Leander Yazi, who is a completion advisor at Green River College in Auburn, Washington. He is a member of the Navajo Nation and was born of the Bitterwater and Water Flows Together clans. Leander has been working for Green River College for the past four years and held roles within the workforce education and advising departments. In addition to his experience in the civilian sector, he is an Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran and exited the United States Army as a staff sergeant. Throughout Leander's career in higher education, he has always advocated for Native American students within Washington State by attending state, community, and technical college meetings and conferences. 
Lander has also facilitated Native American student, faculty, and staff groups at the annual Student of Color Conference and the Faculty and Staff of Color Conference. Lander's work in Washington will one day empower and influence more Native students to obtain a degree or trade that will enable them to be competitive within the workforce, as well as enhance their ability and skill sets to positively contribute to their tribal communities. Leander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We were put together by Leah Panganibon uh, from Region 8, who listeners of the show also know that know that Leah is also my mentor in the Emerging Leaders Program. And we were chatting one day in, with our monthly meetings that we do, and she was like, you have to talk to Leander. Leander's an awesome person and has a lot of great information. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get you guys to, to chat. And then um, it almost seems like maybe a month or so ago that uh, we we scheduled a time to talk about things. And then you know asked you about like your background, your story. And then it was like, yeah, Leander's got to be on this podcast. So thank, thanks for thanks for agreeing to be on it. Oh uh, no problem. I. I just want to share, share, share more story and just, uh, you know, really get, uh, awareness about, you know, the, our, our, our native students that I feel, you know, really has been is kind of a, they're, they're sort of invisible. And, you know, and I read an article a couple months back about, you know, it's, I think it was coming from, uh, I think I want to say the, National Indian Education Association, they were talking about the invisibility of, you know, Native American students, uh, Indigenous students. And so that's kind of why I'm here, you know, I want to be able to uh, be that voice and, you know, make sure that our students are are not being forgotten um, at all levels of education. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's our aim in starting the podcast was to try to provide a platform for people to share stories and to highlight areas that maybe didn't always have a, a light shined upon them. So we're really glad that you have joined us today and hopefully we can, you know, uh, provide the platform for you to to share that that story. Um, I suppose for, for listeners, um, maybe it would be interesting for them to, to talk about, um, you know, how you got involved with, with advising, what that journey wa- was like for you. Yes, it all started out, um, you know, it, just a little background about where I came from um, and how I started working in higher ed was uh, basically I, I got out of the Army um, in 2013. And um, while I was in the Army, I, I had this um connection that this connection to education uh especially higher education um all based on you know my experience um in um in higher ed at asu uh, arizona state and just the the amazing support and connections that we had um with you know with each other with uh, each other students and and with the staff and faculty there so, um, and then when I was in the army, I kind of, I, I kind of swayed away from education and really focused on uh, the, the the tactical military side of things. And then um, when I was deployed in Iraq, I, you know, I was trying to find, you know, something to get, you know, to pass the days and pass the time. So I volunteered at the um, the education center there at, in Balad, Iraq which is also known as LSA Anaconda. Um, 
and I volunteered and uh, taught two CLEP sociology classes. And from there, you know, like I, I, I liked being in front of students and helping students. And so, um, and the, the re rewarding part was knowing that 80% of my students uh, did a pastor CLEP exam and were able to use that as college credit, you know, when they got out of the military. So um, that's where I started to think more about higher education and how I would be an asset to not only higher education as a whole, but for, you know, uh, um, Indian country and all of native people. Um, so I, I applied for the doctoral of uh, the doctor of education at the University of Washington Tacoma uh, in 2013. And, you know, I got, I was accepted. And so um, it's been a, it's been a long, it's been a long and bumpy ride, but you know, I'm getting through it. I'm learning a lot, learning a lot about, you know, the student population and also about the, you know, um, the background uh, workings of higher ed, you know, whether it be instructional or at a more student, student affairs, student services type. Yeah. And those CLEP exams we were talking about when you were um, in the military, like those, when I've worked with students, when I used to work in the admissions office, those CLEP exams came in handy because you took those exams and you're actually getting college credit for courses. And it, it's nice that you're able to do that while in the military. So like once you start, let's say, attending uh, the university, you've transferred over some of that work. And then that's less requirements now that you have to have yeah. to complete. Now, um, since leaving the, the United States Army as a staff sergeant, did you start working after that or were you doing the uh, workforce education uh, before then? Oh yeah, yeah. Um and how I got connected to that was uh just um the networking that I received uh, at the University of Washington Tacoma uh through the doc program. Um, you know, I was connected with a lot of people who were um a lot of professionals who were uh you know, uh held, you know, leadership positions at different colleges within the state. And so they, you know, you know, I just working with them you know, after a quarter or two, you know, they're like, oh, I think, you know, I think there's um there's a position open of you. Maybe you should apply for it. And, you know, for a whole year, I stayed out of, I was unemployed. Uh, I was trying to get into the system, but I just wasn't getting in. And so just with that networking and being able to connect with folks, you know, at um, at school was, uh, was, was very helpful in where I am today. Um, but I also wanted to, uh, you know, you mentioned um, you're, you're talking about the CLIP exams and bringing that up and, you know, doing work, doing schoolwork at, um, while I was being deployed. Um, and throughout my whole time as a non-commissioned officer, sergeant and above, um, I basically told my soldiers, you know, you guys need to at least take one class, you know, um, continue your education. Um, and a lot of it came, I, we had tuition assistance. We had, there were, there, there were a lot of resources out there where you can take advantage of that you could take advantage of as a military service member. So that's, uh, I guess that's where my advising kind of started, you know, was really just, you know, talking and being a mentor to my, um, to my soldiers and, you know, telling them, you know, you need to get to school, you need to do this and, you know, to kind of, 
you know, demonstrate that, that, that need and that want for education. I was doing my master's, I was doing master classes, um, at, um, when I was in Iraq and that was kind of hard taking a financial analysis of like a, I think it was like a healthcare financial class, um, in Iraq. And, you know, that was, that was a rough, uh, that was a rough semester. <laughs> Yeah, pro- t- a little bit of a different sort of uh, distractions than what uh, most students are dealing with when they are taking uh, their their classes. But it, it sounds like that uh, you were, as you said, you were drawn to advising ever before you were an advisor. Um, I suppose it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about like in your current role, um, about your kind of day to day, what what is it that uh, that you get up to in your current role? Yeah, so um, when when I was uh, um, when I took on the role as a completion advisor, uh, before that I was um, a project manager for workforce education, mainly for the work retraining um, grant that we have here in Washington. And so with that, I was a I I met with students who were um, who were, you know, veterans who were on un- unemployment, who were laid off for many reasons, um, who were, um, you know, spouses who's lost their, you know, main source of income, um, as far as like their spouse, their, their spouse passing away. Um, and so being, you know, and then transitioning to completion advising, um, that that skill set that I that I acquired at within the workforce education um, department was I was able to uh, you know use that empathy you know um, and that acknowledgement of you know sitting there and putting myself in the student's shoes and saying you know what would I do if I were there in their situation you know and being you know coming from a reservation background. You know, I was born and raised on the Navajo Reservation. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't tough, but it was challenging. Um, and, you know, for many different reasons, social, economic, um, there were so many different um, obstacles and barriers that we, we overcame. And I didn't even know that until I got to college um, that there were these barriers, you know, I mean, there were these um, issues that, that stemmed from the reservation life. Um, so with that, okay, going back to, uh, workforce education, um, just having that, the empathy for, you know, understanding where the students at. So when I started the completion role, um, that was one of the things is I wanted to, uh, I was told I needed to identify the barriers that students are, are, um, coming across as they are. Um, approaching uh, completion graduation. So, um, you know, we were given um, a budget to help the students with any kind of financial uh, situations that they were stuck in, or if it's just even just sitting down with somebody and explaining to them what they need to do um, their last quarter or who we need to connect to. Um, and then more recently, we've partnered with United Way um, and they have the Benefits Hub. So the Benefits Hub does um, does the work that we 
initially tried to do as completion advisors when we when I first started uh, several years ago. Um, and it was hard, you know, it was hard to get out there and get out to the community uh, partners and resources and create that uh, connection with um, with them. Um, but then you had to be at the office and still kind of, um, you, you still had to create that, uh, that connection with the student as well. So, but I'm so happy that we, we are partners with United Way, the Benefits Hub, and they are the ones who are connecting with the community partners, and, um, making sure these resources are available for students and they are making that, that, um, uh, that strong connection for, for students. Yeah, and it almost seems like every role that, that you've talked about so far, it's been in a helping role. Like you've assisted um, everybody, including like your current students right now. Now, one of the things you were talking mm-hmm. about is in your completion advisor role was that you had to identify some of the barriers that your students were, were facing or are facing. Can you talk about some of the, what those barriers are? Yeah, just to kind of be a very... Um, general i think uh, uh the, the top barriers that i see is uh, mainly financial um you know students will come across you know will will hit that threshold um where financial aid will not pay no more um and these students are you know they're already going through struggles you know either passing classes or just uh, exploring the you know the options that they have um, and their pathways, you know, at the beginning were all over the place. And so, um, that kind of left them in that, you know, where they ex- exceeded, um, their financial, financial aid uh, assistance. And so they're kind of left with their, you know, like a one, one quarter hanging and say they are one or two classes away from completing their degree, but yet they, they don't know where they can. They don't know where to get the funding from, so that's one of my jobs is to find that and to and my boss had created had mentioned this and um, not created, but she uh, since the beginning has always talked about funding triage and you know so we looked at the different resources we had on campus and said well this is what the student is eligible for this is where we can check and you know it was just kind of uh, kind of like a elimination. Of funding, uh, but yeah. So with that, with the completion, the barriers uh, we have, you know, financial. Um, another thing is childcare, which um, I work with a with a great colleague of mine. Uh, she's she's doing a great job with um, managing a um, a grant that's given here in or that's a that was presented by um, by the Washington. Um, I think it's the state board, I believe. Um, and so that helps students with uh, child care. So that's another thing that um, that we have that, that, that's emerged out of this completion rule. So, uh, and then, well, I'll just give you the top three. It's financial, child care, and then, you know, um, like, you know, uh, student probation statuses, you know, so we got students who are who are hitting those probationary um, uh, developmental math and English are mm-hmm. several uh, subjects where you know they just uh, like some students 
hit that math barrier and they, they, they don't know what to do and who to talk to. And, you know, it's, it's all new. <laughs> um, and we, we just try to help them, you know, we try to help them point them in the right direction. And, um, and like developmental math is, is probably one of the hardest maths out there, you know, fractions and, you know, probabilities and, you know, the, the word problems, <laughs> those are all um, barriers as far as classes go. I think Matt highlighted it um, there around your roles in terms of helping people. Your passion for that clearly shines through. Um, now, at the, the beginning, you you talked about the, the invisibility of um, Native Americans, and you're obviously uh, acting as, as an advocate. And I suppose maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about your advocacy role and and around changing that that invisibility that that it exists how how i advocate for our native students um and you know involving the invisibility um and kind of bringing that to attention of educators and advisors in my in um, in my network is just to kind of keep reminding them that you know we are still here that um our students you know are, are and I I don't want to generalize, but I do want to say that, you know, from what I've seen in working with several um, Native students is that, you know, voice is really, um, it's really important. And, you know, and they want to be seen, but yet they're still timid, to, not timid, they, they still hold back and they want to be able to say something, but they don't see anybody around around that looks like them, so they they feel like they're supported. So that's one thing I want to, you know, help you know my my network, um, other educators, just kind of bring that awareness for our students and you know, um, kind of welcome them, ask them questions. You know, um, you know, of course they got to be appropriate questions um, and. So it's just it, it's just mainly um, advocating for them and you know still making sure that there's still that voice you know that they still have a voice and that maybe it'll take um, people like myself or you know people who are um, who are non-native that are actually being allies for our students and standing up and speaking out. Um, and I'm glad to say at my college, I do have several um, several colleagues who are non-native, who are very interested and very supportive of the work that I do, and, and mainly, mainly really for students. And when we were talking offline about a month ago, um, we were chatting about how like the different states work differently a lot of times with native tribes can you talk more about that um you know because i think one of the examples that we we had talked about was the differences with like let's say arizona and washington yeah and i think um i think it really relies really on the institution um on how they want to make that that relationship work with um tribal leadership tribal communities um tribal governments um 
And so that's kind of where that, that that's what I think uh, is important. Um, and I want I, I am stressing that to my college and other uh, colleagues around the Washington State system. Just you know, we need to make that you know a priority. And so what? Why I, I always bring I always bring to to the to the to the table is that you know the whole land acknowledgement that a lot of institutions, a lot of conferences, um, people are using now. Um, I think it's been like a year or two that they started using them. And so in those land acknowledgements, I I read them. And it's like, okay, well, we thank the people who were here before, who are, you know, who are, who are present. You know, we think, you know, this community, this nation, this group of people, you know, for being able for us to be able to gather on this land and learn. And so I, I, I look into that and I'm like, okay, well, then let's take a look about, look into the institutions and how are they back? How are they backing up this statement? And um, we created a working group at my college, and we we have, have been trying to talk about a land acknowledgement. And my my argument, or I guess my my main concern is that I want school to be able to say that or stand behind this statement and say that this is what we are actually doing. And we are, we are honoring because of this. We are respecting because of that, you know? Um, so all of those, all those words, honor, respect, um, you know, encourage, motivate are all important for, for these institutions to kind of look at, you know, okay, so are, is this, you don't you don't want it to be a check the box kind of statement. You know, you just don't want to say it because everybody else is doing it. You want to be able to create a statement that speaks to to the the tribes that are involved, to the you know, as far or involved within the institution or the land that the institution is sitting on, you know. So you just want to be able to kind of make sure that those two connect. Um so that's that's where I I feel that there's differences um, between the the tribal communities and institutional um, I guess leadership. Um, and then when it comes when it's comparing states, uh, different states uh, in Arizona, I know that um, a lot of the tribes are working together. You have the Navajo, you got the Apache, you got the Pima. Hilo Rivers, you have um, the Wallapais, you know, they're all sending their students to these universities, you know, Arizona State, Northern Arizona University, um, University of Arizona. And, you know, they're sending them their students to these colleges. And then also, you know, their, um, their community college system has has a strong Native American uh, presence and a strong Native American student support services. So, um, and that's one thing that I noticed was a difference up here is that we we don't have that um, that type of support up here. You know, and maybe it's because there's the population is lower than the 
population in, in Arizona. But I think that, you know, uh, the Native students should be uh, given this opportunity to have a specific type of service to them, you know, um, and with people that work in the institutions that come from the same backgrounds as they are. Yeah. And that would help a lot with increasing um, uh, the enrollment and then also with retaining and completing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. And are there things, uh, Leander, that advisors can can do to to better support and be better allies? So I just uh, like I said, like I mentioned, the land acknowledgement, just acknowledging who uh, the land that you are on and who whose land that is, um, and then also uh, just understand the type of student support that is out there for Native American students. You know, ask those questions. What 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 kind of support do we as an institution provide specific for these for the Native American Indigenous students? Um, uh, and then, you know, like I I said earlier, you know, the, there are some institutions um, that have more support services than others, and some even have spaces. You know, uh, and I remember when I first got when I first. Uh, started at Green River, um, a colleague of mine mentioned, you should do, you should, you know, propose for a longhouse. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a pretty big project. And, you know, and that takes a lot of years of relationship building and commitment to tribal people. Um, and so, you know, that's that I don't think it's going to be something in my in my time of in, in higher ed, um, especially here in the community college system. Right now, we I believe a, a Peninsula College has a longhouse um, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful longhouse. Um, I, I visited, I would say, back in 2014 and it was, it was, a, it was a nice longhouse. Um, and in University of Washington, um, in Seattle, they have, they, they just opened their longhouse, their intellectual house. And that, that's another beautiful, uh, building as well. So, I mean, there are some work that is happening here at Green, um, here in Washington. But I think that when we, I think we need to expand more, you know, we need to start bringing more services. Um, bringing more faculty and staff that look like um, the student population. So um, I just got a text from Leah. So I was telling Leah that uh, we were going to be interviewing today. And so she messaged me right now. She said, uh, can you let Leander know that Region 8 appreciates his leadership? And we are so happy that he is also the Native American and Tribal Colleges Advising <laughs> Community Chair. <laughs> and 
So I guess like, to go along with that, uh, not only Leah just being so helpful with that and, you know, and acknowledging that uh, she's such an awesome person, but yeah. maybe we go into that in Nakata. Like, yeah. So outside of your, your role at Green River, you're also uh, the current chair of the Native American and Tribal uh, College Advising Community. Can you talk about, you know, again, you know, Colin was asking about what advisors can do. Is there anything that uh, your what your goals are for this advising community and maybe also how advisors or those in academic advising, those that are Nakata members, how they can also help out and support? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thank you to Leah and the, the Region 8 group. And um, I was fortunate enough to uh, to attend the annual conference in Louisville this past, uh, uh, this past year. And, you know, it's just an amazing group of people. Um, it, it's it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to be a part of this this Nakata group, um, both as a as a global community and also within Region Eight. Um, and so so thanks a lot, Leah. <laughs> um, and so again, you know, like I think my goal, uh, being the the, uh, the community chair for the Native American Tribal Colleges, uh, is basically to create more uh, Zoom meetings. Um, and really to start make, making those connections. Um, and, you know, I had been trying to, and like I told you, uh, Matt, um, before, you know, when we set this up and I was like, yeah, I was like, when I get back from Region 8 conference, you know, I should have a lot to tell you. And <laughs> that just totally threw, threw me off. And so, and I was hoping to have more, more info, more insight. Um, but I think to to all who are listening, and I think um, I'm more than willing to to chat, uh, to talk about these these issues, or talk about ways we can uh, collaborate uh, to make this, you know, to, to create this and make it even bigger, um, and to get that voice louder. Um, and so, and I just want to encourage more advisors um, and educators to. Uh, to be active in the community uh, and to come about to the conferences and to connect and you know kind of serve as a um, a place for us for us to we can start building um, that building uh, or or not start building but but reframe our our work you know and you know bring it back bring it back to life you know um, and one day I hope to see little, um, little squares of Zoom, Zoom faces uh, on my computer with uh, with all kinds of advisors from different areas from from uh, the United States, Canada, and maybe even from other parts of the the world. You know, who are serving, you know, other Indigenous people from other countries. And um, I don't know. I, I just I I just want to be able to you know, get something started. Um, that's always been my my passion, um, you know, from high school all the way to college, you know, I wanted to be a part of something, you know, and I wanted to, you know, be able to kind of say I left the mark, you know, left the mark, and so, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I just like that, you know, that being able to be a part of things. So. And you were referencing a uh, region eight there. So when we were chatting um, last month, this was around the time that 
the Region 8 conference was going to be going on in Nakata. And you were so excited to, to be going. I think you were also <laughs> be presenting there. Can you talk about what that was like? You were what you were going to be presenting on. What what we had talked about. What you were going to be doing there? Yeah. So um, I was going to present on basically. I'm trying to get. So I want to be able to. Uh, um, so my presentation was uh, titled uh, "Serving uh, Native American, Alaskan Indian, um, Alaskan Native, uh, Indigenous Student." Uh, populations and understanding their journey and so with this with this presentation I you know brought it all the way back to you know history to the history of education uh, Indian education um, when I went in there and I made a little diagram about what was going on as far as you know the different acts and the different uh, public laws that, that were passed um, and so like all uh, more current, you know, like the the past presidents, um, George Bush, yeah, George Bush, uh, Clinton, Obama, are all positive things. But there's only one last positive thing, um, and that was the uh, that was the uh, when the Trump administration tried to get rid of the or attempted to um, cut the budgets for uh, Indian education. Um, and he attempted he attempted twice before this year, and so this is the third year. And um, and I I mean there's just so much, you know, in recent years that there's been a lot of positive coming from our government, and so it kind of puts me on eggshells when you know I read about these budget cuts as far as education goes. So uh, we're going to talk more about that, um, and just. Talking about where our students are coming from, you know, the trauma, uh, the, the generation of trauma um, from the boarding school era all the way to today, you know, I mean, like we have students who are, you know, um, you know, we have students who are facing, you know, straight up in the face, uh, racial hostility, uh, lack of respect, uh, you got stereotypes. Uh, other students stereotyping. Um, you got loneliness at colleges. You know, a lot of our a lot of our students are are really close to their families, um, and even you know, even you know, just being thirty minutes away, you know, they're still they still feel that connection. You know, um, and I can go on about you know being connected to family, but I know we have short time, so we won't get into that today. Um, and then, you know, also the, you got the lack of role models, you know, lack of institutional support. And so, I mean, there's just so much that, you know, I, I feel um, that needed to be talked about um, at that, um, at the conference. Um, and more, I think it was more of, I wanted that interaction between advisors and other educators. And I wanted to hear their stories. And as the as the chair of the community, I wanted to use that information and use the, their feedback and kind of start start structuring what I'm going to do um, um, after Region Eight. But <laughs> so I think um, with what's going on right now with the pandemic, and 
I just uh, really need to I utilize the Zoom um, uh, access and really get connected with our students, with our um, with my fellow colleagues. Leander, you spoke there very, very passionately, very eloquently about the journey of Native American education, Native Amer- individual Native Americans on their journey. You spoke about the challenges that that the students face. Do you think there are misconceptions in institutions in relation to Native Americans or misconceptions in the way in which institutions support Native American students? That's a good one. Um, and I think just kind of being careful. <laughs> I think that institutions sometimes, especially when they see a low population, um, it's seen more of a business. You know, how much money is this? Are you, you know, is our time in outreach and is our time in making this happen? Is our time in creating a space and is, is that, is that, is there a, a return on investment? in all of this that we're going to be doing for your students. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, and, and just that, that it kind of sticks out. And, you know, and that's one thing when I was in the doctoral program um, and I spoke with several of my colleagues there about that, you know, it was about, you know, this, what I, what I was advocating for and what I was talking about um, with leadership was like, um, well, people who were in leadership positions and they were just like, well, it's just, it's kind of, it, it's not a priority. It's not one of the priority items that, you know, um, the leadership sees. So, so that's kind of where I, I started asking that question. I was like, you know, we can't, ha- I think there's that misconception of, we just need, really need to um, kind of look at that, you know, that, that question and say, you know, is this is this what institutions want to do um, for the, the native people, for the tribal communities? Is this, do they want to invest in that, or you know, what type of investment is this going to be? Yeah, so it's like, uh, you know, what type of investment is this more of for the college or is this for the community? You know, is this to build this community and to, you know give them the opportunity of education. I hope that answered your question. I think I kind of swayed around. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Abs- no, no, really. That was great. I know that, that that really helped to clarify things there, I think. Yeah, and I, I could definitely, and I, I it's it's unfortunate that the conference, the Region 8 conference and, and the rest of the region conferences for Nakata were canceled, but it, it had to happen because of yeah. the COVID-19 with the pandemic. I could definitely see your presentation being something that could be a webinar or something that maybe down the road could be virtual. So that way attendees or even Nakata members could, could view it and there could still be that, that discussion um, that, that, that you wanted at the conference. Um, Is there anything as, as we close out, is there any questions that you want advisors to maybe think about or Anything you want to tell advisors um, in the last couple minutes? Uh, yeah, I just would like for um, other advisors, uh, both Native and non-Native, um, to start looking at your student populations, uh, the, the Native student population. Um, 
and kind of you know kind of gauge where they are um, and what kind of services are provided, um, and just really give that attention um, to to these students, and then also just really consider um, your the land that 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 you're on, the land that you're working on, um, and if there is a statement that's going to go, you know, that's going to be pertaining to to the college and its acknowledgement of the land, then I feel that, you know, there needs to be, um, there needs to be important dialogues, important discussions um, between leadership, between staff and faculty and community, the tribal community leaders as to what this, this statement is saying. Um, and, you know, from there, I mean, I guess it's in a sense, it's almost, it's almost like a mission vision statement, you know, like, this is what we look for, this is what our vision is, and this is what we're doing right now to help, um, and we're acknowledging the fact that we are on this land, and, and this is our words to support it. Leander, I think you've raised some really fascinating points. I think you've offered wonderful insights into a topic that I didn't have a huge amount of knowledge on. So I want to thank you for taking the time to join Matt and I. I think for listeners, they will take a lot from this conversation. I hope it will spark conversations at institutions uh, across um, America and wider than that and across NACADA's global community. So we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and hopefully it won't be the last time we have you on the podcast and we can have you on again in the future for further conversations. Oh yeah, that'd be great. And, you know, thank you guys for setting this up and thanks to Matt for all the email communication. Um, and just a big shout out to, you know, I just want to give a shout out to my college um, for being, um, I guess, welcoming to some of the words and the questions that I, that I, that I present, you know, and so just wanted to give a big shout out and to, you know, my, um, you know, my supervisor and my leadership all the way up, you know, they have given me that, um, that support to, to make this happen and to ask these questions and to present this stuff in a more, sometimes, you know, like, I feel like I want to be able to just bluntly say things, um, and so I'm learning how to kind of, you know, talk more strategic. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh, and I appreciate the invitation. And I hope we can, we can chat soon and maybe, maybe something after uh, the national conference this year. Yeah. And, um, fingers crossed San Juan works out and then we can officially meet you in person. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right. Take care, Leander. Really, really fascinating to hear from Leander there. And Matt, I'm delighted that he was able to come on and chat to us. One of the our aims in starting this podcast was to bring a diverse array of voices together. And Leander just did such a, a great job of talking about supporting that group of students and championing that group of students. And I suppose that 
what you mentioned in the intro around the idea of the invisible student, there are a number of probably different cohorts of students who might fall into to that category. And it's something that we're definitely going to look to explore in the future. But really fascinating from Leander there. And it was a topic I certainly didn't have a great deal of familiarity with just tried to to bring curiosity to it and uh, Leander certainly provided lots of insight so thanks to him for doing that now next up we are going back to the the question of you know no what 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 do you wish essentially that you you had known earlier maybe or what advice would you give to your younger self and now we have somebody who is a very good friend of the show. Uh, I think he has uh, appeared a number of times previously, and we are delighted that he took the time to chat to us again. And it is Michael Harrison. My name is Michael Harrison from Cal State University, San Bernardino. And knowing what I know now, what advice would I give myself when I first started my career as an academic advisor would be always keep people at the forefront. Remember that we are dealing with people. Remember that we are people. And so in every walk of life, in every position on campus, um, in every interaction, we're always dealing with people. And so if we can grant people the ability to be human beings, right, um, the same complexity that we that we grant ourselves, then that'll allow us to develop relationships, bonds, and give an understanding uh, of uh, those around us. Thanks again, Michael, for that. So our next interview is with Monica Polito. So uh, this is an interview that I recorded with Monica a few months ago. So I think it was back in February. So this is kind of pre-pandemic times. And Monica, she's an administrative support assistant in the Student Assistance in Learning Program, or SAIL program, as it's called. And so we talked to Monica about like what SAIL is, but mostly about her time as a student and after graduation, because one of the things that Monica presents on, aside from her other duties, is on money management and budgeting to undergraduate students. And I think that's a topic that's really important. And Monica, what's great about her with her presentations is she gives a lot of stories in terms of her time as a student. And, you know, in a way, kind of like mistakes that she's made and how she's learned from it. So this is actually, I think, great information. And it was really lovely to be able to interview Monica because she's such a wonderful person. And I'm glad that we were able to get this interview done before the whole COVID-19 situation. So let's go right into it. Monica, can you talk to us about SAIL, what the SAIL program is? Yes. So the SAIL program serves students who are first generation students with disabilities and also students who are low income. So underrepresented students. So our main focus is to help the students in their college career, making sure that they're on track for graduation, helping them the best as possible to have the main support services in our program to continue forward for their future career. Nicely put. And not only do you work in SAIL, but you also were previously a SAIL student, right? Correct. Yes, I was. Now, do you feel that the SAIL program helped you? 
most definitely. My counselor was Brenda Louise. She was amazing. She helped me my last year and a half. That's when I started in sale. I wish I would have found it sooner. I was also part of EOP as well. So EOP helped me my first year and a half. Well, my first two years, actually. So having both programs as a support system definitely did help me succeed in my career. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. So you had two different programs, so sale, but also EOP, different programs, but some of it kind of overlaps and, and, and is similar in a way. Do you feel that helped you having both those programs? Were there any like crossover where it felt like it was redundant? I think both programs offer their own specialties, and that was the neat part of it. So you have your counselor in sale, and you also have your counselor in EOP. So each one gives you like advice and stuff although it may be same it's like different so it's like different support but also it connects in the best way possible oh that's really nicely put oh, awesome because <laughs> i was part of eop i didn't get a chance to be part of sale um but uh, everything you're saying about eop and sale like that i've heard from other students is that's an awesome program both awesome programs and they definitely help students. I know for me, like my counselor was Carolyn Stevens. Um, shout out to Carolyn, now at Alabama State. But she really helped me out during my time, especially a first gen student and kind of feeling lost when I got here. And she made sure I was on top of everything and is always following up. So she was like a second mom to me. <laughs> but also shout out to Brenda, your counselor from yeah. Sale. I hope she's doing well. And she's always missed here at Cal State San Bernardino. Now, when you were a student, we first met when you were a student, like in like your last year, you actually presented um, at my class for uh, University Studies 200. And that presentation was on what? Money management, financial literacy, money management. And I think from that start, you, you presented and I was like, wow, Monica is amazing. Like everyone was amazing <laughs> in there, but you had like so many stories that I think resonated with, with students. So even once you graduated and you were working for the sale program and the sale program wasn't necessarily doing the money management uh, presentations anymore. I know I talked with your boss and I was like, hey, can uh, Monica still present? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. So she volunteered you. <laughs> <laughs> so every term you came, came in and presented to my class, what are some tips that you might be able to give students that are trying to save money? And I know one of the stories you gave was the cup of noodle story. Oh, yes. So the famous cup of noodle story, some students may know on campus, those that were here in 2015, 2016, and 2017, I did present to like the population of, that were just coming in. So like the incoming freshmen. So my thing was, my when I started in 2011, I was a first-gen student, low income. I had no idea what taking care of finances was I mean I didn't have like a hundred dollars to my name at a time or even ten dollars if I was lucky so coming in and I saw the comma in my bank account I was like I'm rich I thought like money was inevitable I could just get it anytime but I wasn't thinking logically I didn't have a job I couldn't support myself financially my mom couldn't support me because she didn't have a job so it's she's a stay-at-home mom so she was trying her best 
But then Monica decided to just splurge in like my first month. I spent it at the mall. I spent it going out. It's just like, you know, my friends are like, oh, can you help me with this? I got you. Like I was just <laughs> spending it like it was like I won the lottery or something. But then the end of the first month, I was broke. I had no money. I was left to myself. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm living on campus. I have so many support services, but what am I going to do? So I just lived on Cup of Noodles. I gained the freshman 15 or the freshman 20s, I call it, because I wasn't <laughs> taking care of myself physically either. So I continued that. And then the next quarter, I was like, I'll do better. Continue the same process. And then the spring quarter, I was like, I'll do better. And then the same thing again. So I told students, if you learn anything, don't be like me. But I call myself the Cup of Noodles because that was my life at the time. <laughs> And it was definitely a, a, not only did I think it resonate with students, you know, there was a humor in it, but I think they also got to see like, wow, okay, Monica was just like me and right, you know, right now. And okay, if this is what she's doing now, this is how she was able to take care of it and get out of that kind of, I guess, habit. Um, I can do that too. And here's how I can learn from it because Monica was able to do it. Um, and, and I know like that's a story that, that you'll give in, in each of the presentations, each term uh, when I was teaching the class. And, and I always look forward to it because I was like, this will be the story that the <laughs> students are really going to gonna get. And they're going to be able to remember this even like months and years later. <laughs> yeah. Now, another example that you have is a cruise that you were on and you mentioned that uh, story to students during the presentation as another example of ways that if they want to accomplish something or they have a goal, here's how you, you can do it, especially with money. <laughs> so it's called what's a smart goal. So it's specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-framed. So making sure that the goal that you're going to accomplish is for you, not for anyone else outside of the group. So it's something that you want to accomplish. So I wanted to go to a cruise. I never thought growing up would be possible. Like, I based my whole life on, like, movies and TV shows and everything. Like, I want to go on a cruise. I was like, it's never going to happen. Um, I don't have the financial the financial support. I don't have the finances to do so. Supporting a family at the age of 19, a family of six, it was difficult. But I was able to just be like, okay, Monica, you're going to decrease spending on eating out. Because that was a huge one. <laughs> so, with my first goal specific is, like, I want to go on a cruise. Measurable. It was measurable because I had to save enough money within, like, the amount of time that I got my paycheck. And then... Specific, measurable, achievable. It was achievable because I could go to a cruise. It was less than $300 for three days, which was nice. It was relevant because it was for me. And the time frame was I had to say at this month, I'm going to save this amount. The next month, I'll save that amount. And I was able to build it up. And I went to Ensenada, which is like super cool. <laughs> One of my best friends. And from then, that is going to live for me for like the rest of my life, knowing that I had the opportunity to excel in that kind of sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think since you were able to find such great prices for the cruises, I'm going to be coming to you as my travel agent, right? <laughs> but I just want to say thanks for everything, especially for, for my class being able to present. You always find the time to do it, and you don't have to. Oh. And the, just that my students should get so much out of it. And every time I come to the sale office, you're always had that smile on your face, always so energetic and encouraging. So even if I'm having a bad day, it's like, I know I can just go walk by sale, peek my head in, and then Monica will be there. But the days that you're not, I get down because I'm like, wait, where's Monica? <laughs> so, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, any tips that you have for, for students uh, just in general? Because I mean, you as a previous student, you've seen students essentially every day that come in through uh, into the sale office. Any extra tips, even aside from like money management, any success tips that, that you have that, that you've learned that you might be able to give to, to students? 
Definitely. I came in in 2011 not even thinking it was a possibility for me to graduate college, nonetheless graduate high school. I was I told students in the past that I wasn't going to graduate high school. I grew up in a very um, troubled home. And in high school, I just in 11th grade, I said, I'm not going to graduate. Like, mom, I'm going to leave. The word she said was, I'm going to be disappointed in you. She said so many words to me, but disappointment was something I never wanted to do to my mom because she was like my, she's my mom and dad. So from that point on, I said, you know what? I need to help my younger siblings be a role model, make sure I go to college and do the best that I can, regardless of how stressful life is. And that's the thing my mom always said growing up as being a little kid at five years old. She said, regardless of what's going on in our household, Monica, you go to school, you go to work and you smile, like even from now into the future. So from then, it's like, if I'm not having a good day, however it is, I still want to make someone else have a good day. Just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean I'm going to put that upon someone else. So I try to just be as smiling, like happy for everyone because I know everyone goes through their own struggles. So regardless of your struggles that you're going through in life, it's only temporary. At that moment, growing up, I was like, this is going to be forever. But then at 19, all that disappeared. And now I'm going to be 27 years old in a couple months. And Life couldn't be any better than it was before. So it's just having the positive mentality of right now is not okay, but it's going to be okay. That's the main focus. Awesome. And before we were recording, Monica said, I'm only going to be 27, <laughs> which made me feel old because I'm going to be 36. So thank you, Monica, for that. <laughs> I know you're okay. I'm just joking. <laughs> but Monica, always a pleasure. And I hope to have you on again so we can chat because I love your stories, love your energy and enthusiasm. You're an amazing person. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Really lovely interview with Monica there. Great job as always, Matt. And I love people who are storytellers. I think that in Ireland, obviously, storytelling is probably our favorite pastime. So Monica is clearly well able to to tell a story and maybe we'll have her back on the podcast again in in the future because certainly when it comes to student finances and budgeting it's only a topic that i think is going to become um an in- increasingly important over the next few months now our next interview is with somebody that you know quite well isn't that right it is and so kind of back to monica yeah she is legit 100 percent real i think you would get along with her very well i mean her stories like seriously resonate with students and anyone that was in college and kind of remember their college days i think that cup of noodle story uh yeah that I think definitely that hits the spot with a lot of students and uh, me too as a previous college student. But yes, uh, the next interview is with Craig Seal. So we've had a previous guest, Craig McGill, on, which uh, I do want to say shout out to him on his award that he just recently won, the Ex- Excellence in Scholarly Inquiry Award. So congrats there. But yes, this is with a different Craig. So Craig Seal is a faculty member at Cal State San Bernardino. With this one, I actually interviewed him back in December and just never got a chance to put his his interview in one of these episodes. And then, of course, then everything happened with COVID-19. And so I was like, well, I can't just post this interview because so much has changed. So let's see how things have impacted him. And we ended up doing like a last minute second interview to put on this episode. So thank you again, Craig, on such short notice to record this. But 
we end up talking a lot about like student barriers, uh, faculty, how they've had to deal with um, going online, uh, what they need to be looking forward to and resources available to them for the upcoming term. So it kind of, I think, is a great uh, connection to the interview that you did with Connor a, a couple episodes ago. And we even chat about how things might look when students and faculty return back to campus at some point. So let's dive right in. All right, so next up, we have Craig Seal, who is a professor of management in the Jack H. Brown College of Business and Public Administration at Cal State San Bernardino. His research agenda is on personal interpersonal capacity development and the scholarship of teaching and learning. His teaching philosophy is to integrate management theory and student written instructor facilitated cases. He received his PhD from the George Washington University, MA from Boston College, and BS from Santa Clara University. Dr. Seal has served as the Dean and Associate Vice President for Undergraduate Studies, the Associate Dean for JHBC, as well as the MBA Accreditation and Student Services Director. Before pursuing a career in academia, he was a manager and executive with experience in nonprofit, real estate, and staffing industries. Craig Seal, aka the Seal of Approval, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. So let's begin with uh, how is life like right now for you in this COVID-19 world? For us, and I, you know, I, I feel bad in a way because we're, we're really well situated. Um, you know, my wife and son and I and my, our dog are all home. Um, he's obviously at home taking classes. He's in sixth grade. Um, she's home. And so we're actually been together, which has been great. Um, and then my transition going from Dean of Undergraduate Studies to now faculty members provided me a little bit of time um, to help with the transition. So um, we're doing really well. Everybody's healthy and we kind of like hanging out together. And it's in a weird way, it's almost been a little fun, although I'm looking forward to getting back out in public a little more, hopefully soon. <laughs> Speaking because you have your son, so are you having to be his teacher as well? He's the good news is he's he's pretty good at staying on task, and so um, his school's been really good, and all the schools have um, in the K through twelve system, and having to respond to this. So um, they have they have a schedule. Um, his teachers are teaching largely through Zoom. Um, they also have a um, course management system they use online for submitting assignments, and so um, you know he gets up. Um, he has breakfast. He jumps um, actually usually either in the living room or in the kitchen um, online and he works with his teacher and his uh, colleagues and then he wraps up for the day, does his homework and it's kind of like a normal day. Yeah, I just heard from like other staff members who are parents and, you know, it just seems like uh, extra duties that, that they have to do depending on like what school they are and what district they're part of and, you know, how structured I guess the classes are. Just we're fortunate that his school has always had an online system. Um, their faculty picked up on this pretty quickly. Um, he has a laptop computer. We have good internet. So um, we're able to navigate that a little easier than I think some other folks may be able to. Now, we've known each other for a few years, and you're kind of known as the the person who preps his emails early morning and then sends them out later in the morning to, to staff uh, for any... Uh, responses or requests uh, that need to be made. So where does that come from? Is that a management thing? Is that a Craig thing? Both? 
It's, it's actually both my father and I were early risers. Um, even when I was a little kid, I used to wake up super early before school um, so I could go downstairs and watch cartoons um, and then have breakfast and then get ready and go to school. And then Saturday mornings, I wanted to get up before the first cartoon hit. Um, and so it's just been a habit of mine to be an early riser. Um, even now, I find I still get up pretty early. Um, I like the quiet. Um, it's usually just me and sometimes me and the dog. Um, and I find I just get a lot of work done and I can knock out in a couple of hours, um, what would normally take me, you know, half a day to do. So, um, I've always been an early riser and I find it really productive time for me. Everyone has to find that zone of morning, afternoon, or evening that they're really productive. And for me, it's always been morning. Yeah, I would have to agree that, uh, morning probably is for me as well. Um, I, I've been on the side of getting your uh, 6am emails. But it, but it let me know that that you were you were active at that time, and then uh, usually we were both at work pretty early, so it was always nice. And what I miss is uh, having our Starbucks meetings. Yeah, because you were always on campus very early as well. <laughs> um, you and I and a couple others were usually the first on. Um, and yeah, I had my six o'clock rule, meaning um, even though I prepared the emails earlier or maybe the night before, um, I wouldn't send anything until after six, just to feel like it was a little too weird for people. Yeah, because I, I think I read somewhere uh, where if uh, supervisors or managers, administrators, um, you know, if they send emails like over the weekend or uh, late at night, then some staff might feel there's an expectation that you need to get it done right then and there versus waiting until your work hours. Yeah. And I've always tried to let staff know, you know, again, just because you get it early or late doesn't mean you need to respond to it. And I think the morning one helps because they're all busy getting ready, dealing with families, getting on the commute. Um, so I think there's less pressure when it goes at night. I think staff sort of feels an obligation to stop what they're doing and have to respond to it. And I didn't want to leave them with that. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate that. Now, last December, uh, we recorded a short interview Um together. And this was, of course, pre-pandemic times. And we had discussed your research and interest in emotional intelligence and, and your excitement returning back to teaching um, this fall semester. So right now, let's take a listen uh, to that. And when we return, we'll chat more with you. So here we go. One of the things you do with your research is on emotional intelligence. What exactly is that and why is that important to you? Well, thanks, Matt. Um, emotional intelligence, I got interested in it early on in my doctoral career. And there's lots of different models, measures, and methods to it and assumptions. But some of the core areas around emotional intelligence is the idea of being more self-reflective. Um, being more empathetic to others, um, being able to manage yourself in different contexts, and then be able to manage and enhance relationships. And those core components tend to be in most of the different models and measures. And the reason it's so important is when we look at organizations, you have sort of a threshold level um, series of knowledge, skills, and abilities and capacities to be able to perform. Um, and if you think of the analogy, say, of, a, of an athlete, you have sort of your weekend warriors, you have sort of semi-professional, and then you have truly professional um, athletes. And at each of those different levels, you have to have a certain threshold levels of skills in order to be able to compete. But what we find is once you meet the threshold, the question is what separates um, say, an average performer from a superstar performer. And in that case, the knowledge, skills, and abilities aren't as big a differentiator as these other intangible qualities often relating to the emotional realm. And that's where EI or emotional intelligence comes in, is that that concept of being able to regulate yourself and regulate others tends to put you at an advantage to be more successful regardless of the occupation. 
how would someone uh, use emotional intelligence in maybe academic advising and teaching the workplace? Well, in particular, um, for advising, um, you know, if you have an advisor that's more um, aware of how they might be reacting, so a student may come in and you may have certain stereotypes about certain students and being more reflective will allow you to sort of work through those or be mindful of those. Um, students are often going to dump um, a lot of information in front of you. And so being empathetic and being able to tease out what's really going on for the student, how does it feel from their perspective, given what they may have gone through in order to be able to get into to an advising session. Um, managing yourself, managing your demeanor. Um, one of the things we teach in sort of clinical or counseling is being able to mirror the person you're working with because that allows you to then sort of raise the level of energy if you need to, but more importantly, decrease the level of energy. And there's some tricks to that um, that can really help in the counseling session or an advising session. And then the relationship management, being able to help students, mentor them, guide them, and get them to take action. And so those are some of the underlying characteristics that EI or emotional intelligence lend itself that really would focus as well on advising, but also a whole host of careers. I think that's just great advice all around, just talking, working with people, right? Um, so you talked about students and teaching. Um, so I hear that you're going to be teaching in fall 2020. Uh, when we go from quarter to semester. Are you excited about that? Yeah, I'm thrilled, actually. Um, one of the reasons I'm moving back from an administrative role to the um, faculty role is to be back in the classroom. I, I miss the classroom. Um, I love working with the students. Um, I love being able to teach. I love being able to um, share some of the knowledge and the experiences. And then I teach an area in organizational behavior and human resources that I find really applicable. And I find in my in the past, students really resonate with the concepts because they can see how this might play out for them and the benefits. And I'm also hoping to, some of the things I've learned as an administrator and working with the staff is not just the core content, um, but also looking at things that might help students navigate their careers and their majors within the context. So things like advising, career service services, some of the resources that are available to students. So I'm, I'm hoping to bring a whole comprehensive approach to teaching that maybe is a little different than what I did before. So in your interview, you talked about emotional intelligence, how we can tease out, get to the underlying issues. How can we do that now with a, a virtual environment? You know, because most of our appointments are, you know, by Zoom or Skype, phone, email even. And if it's Zoom or Skype or some visual type of technology, we kind of just see people in a box and don't only get to maybe see a certain portion of them. So conceptually, it's still the same concept, um, you know, being able to recognize and manage your emotions and the emotions of others. But you're right. It's harder now and it requires a lot more self-discipline um, and not overreacting. We've all gotten those emails that we read and we read into a tone that may not exist. And all of a sudden you're sending all cap responses to somebody and then you find out later that that was not their intent at all, that they didn't. Um, and so it requires much more being cautious about reading into intent. Um, you know, we like to be able to draw intentions out of people, um, but now the cues just aren't the same and it's much harder. Um, you know, when you're in a room, you pick up not just the face, but the physical, the emotive, um, and it just doesn't come through, particularly with email and even in something like Zoom. So you just have to be able to take a step back not read into intent 
or clarify intent if that's a concern for yours. Um, but the underlying issues of being able to manage those emotions is not only still important, but even more so now because everyone is dealing with this added stress. You know, people are scared. People are worried about getting sick. People about we're worried about getting their, um, you know, their families engaged in this. Um, like you said, people are home, which is a whole different issue because now you're having to manage your, you know, your children and your pets while normally you'd be at work. And so, um, it's just an added burden for everybody. So being a little more patient, taking a little more time and trying to clarify intent is as important, if not more important than ever before. And it's funny, as you were talking about that, uh, listeners won't be able to see it, but then your dog almost seemed like he, he wanted a lot of attention right there. <laughs> he definitely was ready for playtime at that point. And again, we have to roll with it because you'll see individuals now, um, faculty, staff, and students who, you know, they're going to have to deal with stuff that normally they would they'd be in class and all that would be removed and there's going to be distractions and you have to be able to allow for that. Now, you're also uh, going back into teaching in the fall and we kind of heard that from uh, the interview that we just played. But before we kind of go into that, can we maybe go into the past and can you talk about your path into teaching and academic advising? Well, um, you know, in terms of teaching, the reality is I got fired. Um, <laughs> I was working for a firm, um, and uh, this is back when the economy was not doing so well after the dot-com, and, um, my, and a friend of mine suggested that, you know what, based on your experience and what you're interested in doing, you should look into this whole issue of academia. And so I applied, um, and it actually was very serendipitous that um, I was actually laid off, and then a couple weeks later, I got my acceptance into doctoral program. Um, but I, I've always liked to teach, even when I was working before, um, doing professional development, working with clients. Um, I really enjoyed the people aspect, not in the sales, but to sort of figure out where they were, where they were going, um, and how I could potentially help them on their journey. Um, and then when I went into my doctoral program, really found that I, I enjoyed being in the classroom. Um, I, I'm not shy about being in public spaces, um, although I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I find I'm very comfortable um, public speaking and always have been. And so it's a natural venue for me to be able to be in front of students. And then when I got particularly here um, at Cal State, the opportunity to work with students on a much deeper level and talking about things outside of class in terms of what are their majors and their minors? Can they go to graduate school? Um, do they need this degree or that degree? Um, and kind of helping them sort of open their eyes to a broader world um, that maybe they hadn't really thought about, the opportunities and the experiences. And so I started working um, actually with our own LA Galt um, in terms of advising, doing workshops and sessions. And then I found myself camping down there a little more often and working with students and tried to learn the general education and certainly learn our curriculum. And I found I was good at helping students. And so that's always carried over for me um, in my work. And you mentioned LA Galt. Um you know the Ellie Galt story about her uh, helping me during freshman advising day? Actually, I don't know if I know that one, Matt. I did the middle college program. So since I was still high school, I had to go to freshman advising day. And I was the most like shyest person probably there. And I was supposed to be... And I kind of mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, but I'll mention it again because I like this story. Um, so I was supposed to be part of the EOP group the whole day. And they put me with the math group because I was a math major at that time. So when I get there and they put me with the math group, I just thought they made a simple change and that's how it was. 
But then throughout the day, I kind of figured, well, maybe I should ask someone because I have this letter from EOP saying I'm supposed to be with the EOP group. <laughs> and of course, I get the courage to uh, to ask at the very end when I'm already registered, done with classes or done with the, the orientation. So I'm walking out of uh, Jack Brown Hall and there's Ellie and it's over. She's trying to direct people to where to go to the parking lot and leave. And I go like, excuse me, I had this letter and it says I'm supposed to be part of EOP, but I was with the math group. In my mind, I think I'm making sense. I think I was just speaking gibberish at that point. But um, she reads the letter and then she's trying to figure out, put the pieces together. And then she's like, well, you might want to try to go to University Hall where EOP is at and maybe see if they're still there. So you kind of know where Jack Brown is like trying to direct someone to UH, you have all these trees in the way and yes. it's further out. So <laughs> she's, trying, right, she's trying to explain where it's at. And then she realizes it and she probably sees like this scared look on my face and then says, how about this? Let me go walk you over to University Hall. So she walks me from Jack Brown to University Hall, which is not necessarily like a short walk. And she ends up uh, taking me um, outside of UH and says, okay, it's gonna be on the third floor. But as you know, because you used to work on the third floor of UH, it's confusing with the rooms. So uh, she's trying to explain how to get there and then realizes, well, I should probably take it to the stairwell that's by the Student Services with Disabilities office. That will probably be easier. So she takes me there and decides to walk me up like two and a half flights of the stairs and then tells me, you know, hey, I think you can get the rest of the way. It's just right around the corner. Um, and luckily, EOP was there. They still helped me. But Ellie... Yeah, she was she was uh, my little angel uh, that day. And it's the walking there. Yeah. That's the difference. And so this is something Ellie's done. This is something I found myself doing. You know, I try to start directions with students and they get this glassy-eyed look. I'm like, all right, let me just take you. Right. Um, but that's what we have to do in this new environment. You know, find ways online with Zoom and email to walk students there because that's what's going to make the difference yeah and it's kind of using like any little aspect of it so like let's say for example zoom uh not that zoom sponsoring uh adventures and advising but um <laughs> you know we can share our screen and show them exactly what we're looking at here's the website here's your transcript here's your um your audit uh we can use the chat function and put our um links in there phone numbers chat in there so like there's so many different things or to follow up with an email you know so Different aspects of it, but I definitely agree with that. Now, um, as many institutions recently over the last few months had to kind of scramble to move instruction and services online, from faculty that maybe you've spoken to or had to work with, what was it like for them during, uh, for us, because we're on the quarter system, and a lot of it took effect, you know, pretty much for winter quarterfinals, because that was up in the air till like almost the day or two before finals. Like, what was it like for them kind of trying to get everything to be online and the beginning of the spring quarter navigating this whole virtual side? It's been challenging. Um, it really has been. Um, I'm prepping a course that I'm going to be teaching this summer, um, but I had the luxury of six months of planning. And that's about how long it takes to do an effective online course is to have about six months of lead time to be able to put all the pieces together. Faculty had, um, in some cases, days notice that they had to teach online and some had very little experience. Now in our college, 
Um, we have an online MBA. Um, we've had online resources and we've had online programs. So a lot of our faculty are at least familiar or have done courses online in the past. So it's been a little easier, I think, for them. But I, I was talking to a, one of our lecturers. He's a lawyer. He's never taught online before. He comes in and he lectures for two hours and he walks out of the room and he's like, what, how do I do this? Um, what am I going to do with this? Um, so we've really had to hit the ground running with a lot of faculty on very quickly pivoting um, how they teach and using things like Zoom. And what I've been telling faculty is you don't have to dramatically change what you're already doing because you don't have that six months lead time of planning. Um, so lean into yourself Find one or two technologies like Zoom or a discussion board that you're comfortable with or willing to learn and just roll with that um, rather than the full-blown design I might expect if somebody had time to prep the course. Now, longer term, we now know that fall is going to be largely online with maybe a few exceptions. And there's a good chance even spring, maybe, there's been no decisions. Um, but if you have a student who, say, is in a high-risk group, or is taking care of others, you're going to have to have some online options for that person, whether it's teaching or whether it's um, in, in student support services. So faculty are always now going to have to consider what's an online option if somebody can't come. So in that regard, if you're planning to do a lecture or an assignment, um, think about maybe the long term. And is it worth maybe a little more upfront on your time now to be able to save that time later because you can reuse that lecture, you can reuse that assignment. Um, so again, it's lean in one to two items at a time, play to your strengths. Um, the other issue that I've been talking to faculty with and has been very prevalent, you have to respond. Um, you know, before you could sort of walk into a class and go, All right, I'll deal with it next week. Students aren't going to wait a week, and that's just not the new normal. And you'll find that issues will quickly spiral out of control. So one thing that does have to change, faculty have to get used to pretty much every day, um, at least some response. No more than 24 to 48 hours um, should you let a student linger. Even if it's a quick, let me get back to you later, or let's set up an appointment, but you have to respond. So the response finding one to two technology and thinking long-term are really what we've been trying to work with faculty going into this new normal. When I've been talking with students um, in appointments, uh, what I do like uh, is that a lot of the faculty are being really straight up and honest uh, with their students in terms of, hey, I've taught online before, so you know we're kind of used to this. Or for the most part, it almost seems I've never taught online before. This is my first time doing it. And um, there are some instructors that some of the students have said that kind of have been changing things on the fly, depending on what works or what doesn't. And they've been really getting a lot of the student feedback on it to be able to make the class as best as possible online. So it seems like a lot of students have been very appreciative of that as well. It's great when you have a good faculty that can navigate that space for you. Um, and as you mentioned, they're doing this on the fly to the best of their ability um, without having any additional compensation or any additional time to be able to, to put this together. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a faculty, so I didn't know about, you know, that sometimes these classes can take like six months to really prep and, and really, you know, put it all together. Um, you know, so I know for our spring quarter, we started a week later to give faculty an additional week, which in my, yeah, <laughs> which in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, great, that's enough time. But now it makes so much more sense. <laughs> Even on it, because we have um, like a one week spring break. So we would tell faculty coming on a quarter system because we used to have three quarters. Um, don't use spring break to plan for your spring. 
because it's not enough time. You have to plan your spring in fall because you just don't, and that's on a face-to-face leveraging things that they already know how to do. And now they're in a new environment. So that requires even more time to get it right. And speaking of students, so I, I guess for students, what would you see as maybe some of the barriers for online learning? And with that, are there any ways we can help, whether that be from an advisor helping a student, faculty teaching the class, or the institution as a whole? I think one of the big concerns for students is recognizing the technology and the bandwidth issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and even faculty, quite frankly, who, who at this point are not really allowed to come back on campus. Um, I have faculty colleagues who don't have great internet. Um, they don't have good home offices. They don't have all the technology. Um, and they have resources. So imagine a student who may be sharing a house. Um, they may have family members. They may not have a private space to go to. They may not have a good computer. They may not have good Wi-Fi. Um, so it's really hard, I think, for students to understand, or not to understand, but to have the technology they need to do this right. And normally, you know, if we're in a normal situation, they can go to the computer lab, they can come on campus and use those resources. And now those resources are no longer available to them. Um, so being mindful of the technology, um, both, you know, for students to see what they can do, but also for faculty to understand that students may not have the best and brightest. Um, you know, they may not have the latest technology. Um, so some of the cool things you can do online, you may need to be able to consider what's a low bandwidth going to do here. And are they going to be able to take that exam? Or are they going to be able to view that video? Um, you know, and then not to even, not to mention even going into the, some of the issues with disabilities and, and accessibility. So, being mindful of the technology limitations that students are having, um, being mindful of their time. Um, you know, some classes are still going to run the same days and times, but again, everybody's dealing with the same issue. They may have kids, they may have parents, they may have family, they may have work responsibilities, and all of a sudden that's going to start intruding. So being flexible on assignments, being flexible on delivery, um, being flexible on the technology, and then one of the big things is finding as many different ways to do the same thing. Um, so for example, I've had a chance to plan and prepare, but my course, you know, there will be PowerPoints. We'll be using voice threads. There'll be live Zooms, although they're not going to be required. Those Zooms will be recorded so students can view them later. I'll be available during office hours. You have to give them as many different opportunities to interface with you as the instructor and you in the class. And normally maybe you wouldn't do that, but now you really have to. As many mm-hmm. options as possible. Yeah, and I know it's been mixed reactions with, with students that I've met with. You know, some love that it's online. They're like, hey, I don't need to commute to school. I don't need to pay for my parking pass. I like this, uh, that my instructors let me kind of work at my own pace. Or, you know, some like that they have to zoom in on the day and time of class because it gives them some sort of structure similar to how it would have been on campus. But then just like you're saying with some of the resources or like the bandwidth issue, um, I have students that, you know, live in a household and they have like their siblings and their parents and they're at a point where they have to kind of schedule times that really people, you know, their family members can use the internet because they need to zoom for their class or zoom for their appointment with me. Um, while others have gone into their car to get away from, you know, the, the, the noise and, 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 and everything. Um, so it's just really just been mixed with, with, with every student. And it's so different with it, each student that we talk to. And part of it is normally with online learning, you have a certain student that knows what they're signing up for. 
And so, you know, for us particularly, it's been mostly in our graduate program, but they, they know what they're getting in for. Um, and those are working professionals. They have the opportunity to eat that time out. Um, for students now, this was not their choice. And I'll be honest, faculty would love to be back on campus. Um, even my son, even though um, his classes end a lot quicker and he kind of has more free time than he did before, he, he and his friends would all rather be back at school. Um, so everyone would rather be back on campus um, and then have an option for online rather than not being on campus and online is the only option. And then there's even like the, the work issue where, you know, some that have lost their jobs, but others that their hours have increased dramatically because they're considered an essential employee. And so now they're having odd work hours. And even if they try to maybe reschedule them, it's really tough to do that with their supervisors. And now it's time to balance work and school and family life and everything. And everything just mixes together. Yeah, it's much more challenging now than I think it was before. But, you know, we talked about some of the barriers. Uh, do you believe that there are any, like, benefits for the online instruction? Actually, there are. Um, as someone who, who taught online before all this happened, I found that teaching online made me a better instructor, even on a face-to-face environment. And I think having online resources available for students, regardless of whether you're teaching fully online or you're teaching face-to-face, is so much better. Um, students want access to the information. They want access to the resources. Um, there's some really amazing things you can do online. Um, discussion boards is a good tool. Um, so, for example, if I'm leading a lecture, sometimes it's easy for students to sort of hide, especially if it's a larger class. But with a discussion board, they can't hide. They have to respond. Um, and so I really get a sense of where everybody's at all the time, which is something I didn't always get when I was teaching face-to-face until there was an exam or some other assessment. Um, so in that sense, I think it's great. And having the resources, the flexibility, um, what I'll do is I'll do common um, assignment deadlines where everything's due at a certain time at midnight. Um, and it provides an opportunity for students to kind of leverage based on their experience, what they want to do first and what they want to do later. So there's a lot of benefits to online learning and a good online class is an amazing experience for students. And I think even those who go back to face-to-face when this is all over and never want to teach online ever again, I still think they will be better instructors for having done this. And I think our students will become better students and more self-motivated and take more responsibility than if this hadn't happened. 100% agree. Now, in your last interview uh, that we were playing, you talked about missing the classroom and being with the students. And I think you were planning on having maybe possibly a hybrid course for the fall term. So now that the CSU Chancellor's Office has sort of stated that more than likely fall is going to be online, although there's no official word yet uh, from CSUSB, um, how does this change up your setup? And um, so if you are planning to have it hybrid, now it's going to be all online. You know, what resources can faculty use uh, and get support for this? So, yes, um, you know, I'll admit I'm disappointed. Um, I was excited to teach um, the hybrid course, particularly it was at our um, our other campus in Palm Desert and just to be able to continue to connect with them. So um, I'm really disappointed I won't have that opportunity to be in the face-to-face environment. Um, having said that, um, it's not that hard to take a hybrid class fully online. Um, I already have most of the architecture and, and the pieces for it to do so. Um, it will make it more flexible. Um, I don't have to commute. They don't have to commute. Um, and we'll have 
some more flexibility on assignments. Um, in terms of resources, it depends on the campus. But in our campus in particular, um, we have Academic Technologies and Innovations, which is a wonderful group with a bunch of um, experienced designers that can help faculty go through the process. We have our Teaching Resource Center that also um, has a, a wealth of resources available to assist. So there's a lot of information for online. One of the hard parts about all this, though, is there's almost too much. And so you can spend years um, going through all the literature on all the different tools and techniques to teach online, and it gets very quickly overwhelming. And again, you have to still do the work at the end of the day, um, which is, you know, building the course, building the content, building the assessments. Um, so again, finding those one to two things that you're willing to try um, is going to be critically important because it can be overwhelming. But there's a lot of resources to help faculty um, continue to support their online learning going into next year. And you kind of touched upon, um, you know, helping out some of the faculty, listening to some of the issues that they were having. Do you have any advice that you would give your colleagues in, in, if they're teaching in summer and or the fall? Um, if fall does end up being fully online, uh, or at least mostly online, regarding structuring their classes, but also more importantly, uh, engaging their students? So part of it is a good um, basic design. So, you know, it's not just throwing up your presentations on Blackboard, um, which is our management system. Um, you really need to be able to structure what is it that you expect students to do and how are they going to navigate that? Um, so, you know, really crisp design elements, you know, having like a get started or start here section, overviewing, you know, how you've laid the course out and where you go. Normally in a face-to-face, -face, we do this when we go through the syllabus. So we have that first couple of hours, we go through the syllabus, we talk about all of this. But in an online, that's not always feasible. So now you have to sort of take that two-hour conversation and figure out how is your architecture set up so it's really easy for students to navigate your course. Um, the other things is announcements, um, doing at least weekly, if not biweekly announcements, telling them this is what's due. This is the resources. This is what I'm expecting. Um, you have to constantly communicate with students every week in order for them to stay on track. So the overall design and the communication are critically important to be successful in an online environment. You know, we talked about faculty and a little bit about like student barriers and, you know, successes or, um, you know, benefits of online instruction. But from a student standpoint, do you have any advice for students on approaching their classes, um, especially our new students coming in for the fall term? Especially if, you know, because sometimes we'll hear in, in appointments where a student will say that, you know, online is not for me. Um, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, and, and actually it's funny because I've had a couple of students who have been forwarded to me and I've responded back to and there's some concerns. Um, the first thing I would ask or recommend to students is think about your long-term plan. Um, you may not be in a position to defer your education because this is likely to be the new normal, at least for a term, if not a year or more. So unless you're willing to take a year or two off of education, unfortunately, you're going to have to adjust to online. Um, and so I encourage students to, to think seriously about continuing, even though it may be suboptimal for them, um, to stick with it. The other thing is, you know, just as your faculty should need to be patient with you, you have to be patient with your faculty because so many of them, this was not what they signed up for. <laughs> this was not the job that they had accepted. Um, and they are doing the best they can to be able to deal with this environment. Um, you know, the other thing is um, the learning responsibility. Again, we talked about this before is on the student. So yes, it's great when you have an instructor that can get you motivated 
but that's not all of the instructors, even on face-to-face. And again, the content is the content. And it's largely the same, regardless of what institution you go to. Um, you know, accounting is accounting. Management is a management. Theater arts, theater arts. So, um, you know, being able to pick that content up and being a little self-motivated as a learner and taking responsibility is going to be important. It is okay to provide suggestions to faculty. In fact, I build in my course multiple surveys um, throughout the course asking them questions. Are we meeting the learning goals? What things should I change? What should I do differently? What should I keep? What's working and what isn't working? Because that's just how I structure my classes. But it's okay to reach out to faculty and make some suggestions. But please be respectful. Understand that they have a lot of other things going on, not just teaching the course. They still have their research. They have their service. They have other parts of their job. They may or may not be in a position to make those changes, but it's always okay to respectfully request that, hey, if we did this, it would help me out. Is this something we could do? Um, So be active in the learning. Take some responsibility. Be a partner in this. And again, it may be suboptimal times, but I would say engage this new normal now because it would be worse, I think, to wait a year or two. You haven't moved forward in your degree while you're waiting for all of this to shake out. And we don't know how this is all going to shake out long term. I think with a lot of students, they, they might be intimidated to talk their, to their faculty or to recommend, you know, make a request. And, it, you know, we tell students all the time, especially during orientation, like always talk to your instructors. But, you know, I think it's just, you know, up to them kind of getting that courage to do it and just really understand that they're humans too. And if if we don't make suggestions to them or talk to them, they may just continue doing the way they're doing and not know that they might be able to change it up because someone may not be understanding something. A lot of us are looking for suggestions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't know from the student's yeah. perspective how things are being perceived. And that's good information for us as faculty. Somehow, I think it connects. Uh, but Michael Harrison, who you know, great uh, presenter, he was telling me that, you know, because a lot of times if you go and present, a lot of times after your presentation, people ask, oh, how'd it go? And you hear people go, oh, it went well. But Michael never says that. He says, well, based off of what the uh, audience said, this is what they said. And I think it went well, because he's like, we could think we're doing the best job ever up on stage or in the classroom. But it's all about, well, what does the student think? Or what does the audience think? And what are they are they understanding what I'm trying to tell them? Is it is the communication there? So it's all dependent on, in this case, the, the student. Yes. And again, we it's nice to get the accolades. But even in Michael's case, I think he would rather almost have please tell me what I need to do differently next time. Right. Yeah. Cause it's always like, how can I do better next time? And unless someone tells me, then I'll just still do it the same way. <laughs> and there's some things I've done as an instructor where I've gotten feedback from students and I'm like, yes, but that's what I intended. Um, so I'm going to do it again. Um, right. It's intentional. And there's other times sure. where I'm like, okay, well, that wasn't what I intended. And so if that's not coming out right, then I need to make a change. But it's, again, mm-hmm. it's always okay to make the ask. Just do it professionally um, and do it politely. Definitely. Eventually, we will hopefully be back on campus at some point, hopefully maybe spring quarter or spring semester, now that we will be on semesters. What are your thoughts on eventually transitioning students back to campus so that you have current students that are in this online format? I guess I should say we're on, you know, on campus, then went to online for spring, maybe online for fall hopefully back on campus for spring semester, there's that transition back. And then there are the students that are starting out that will probably start out online and then eventually be back on campus. 
how do we how do you envision that going? I actually, it's an interesting question, Matt, because I, I think we're going to see um, reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. I, I really do, because students, even if they they're not fans of online learning, having had that flexibility. Um, having had all of the content of a course available to them readily, because sometimes they don't, you know, you go into a traditional classroom and the faculty may intentionally say, I'm not going to share the PowerPoints. I'm not sharing the presentations. You come to class, you learn, you take your notes and you take your exams. Um, so now going from, I have all this information to not having this information. I had all this flexibility to not having this flexibility. And it's not going to be just the students. Faculty also are going to be like, well, do I have to be on campus for that? Office hours apparently can be on Zoom, so I can be home. I don't have to be in my office to do it. And then we're going to see a real issue with staff. You know, our policy has been not to allow telecommuting on campus. Um, Now, all of a sudden, everybody has to. So how do you tell staff you all have to be here from 8 to 5 in this location um, when they're like, well, I was perfectly capable of doing my job and did it really well when I had flexibility. So I really think we're going to experience a lot of culture shock coming back to a campus environment. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're looking over my shoulder. I have to be here. Well, how come I had flexibility before? So, um, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity to get back to <laughs> campus. I really would like that. Um, and I'm hoping, though, but I think there's going to be a change. Yeah. I think for staff, students, and faculty, we will never quite be the same, and hopefully we'll learn some really good lessons of some things that, quite frankly, we can trust each other with, and some things, quite frankly, can be done online just as effectively as it can be done face-to-face. Well, it's funny you say that because that was a thought I was having a few weeks ago was when we're back on campus, I mean, the fact that we were able to move everything to be able to work remotely and not have to be on campus as staff members, are people going to request <laughs> not having to go to campus or do we do a skeleton crew uh, and we just like have certain days we're on campus and other days that we're working from home because honestly like the first two weeks that we were working remotely like I thought I couldn't handle it and there were a couple days I ended up going back to work just to be in the office and then I got uh, now I'm like I've adapted and in a way I kind of like it but I am I I do want to be back on campus for that student interaction but yeah, the question uh, it keeps coming to my mind is, will can it really go back to that normal or where there'll be differences in, in uh, staff hours and uh, who works on campus and who doesn't? Well, think of advising. I mean, right now, you know, before students may have to make an extra trip just to come into an advising session or any student success service that they wouldn't have to take advantage of. Now, all of a sudden, why do I have to come on? Why do I have to spend an hour commuting to get there when I can just do it now and save myself that time, or I can batch a bunch of appointments together, which I couldn't do before. So I think there's going to be a a difference in how we approach work. Yeah. I mean, especially if we are online for fall, which again, it seems like more than likely we will. I mean, like John Norega and I are already talking about, well, how do we handle our two and four year pledge orientations? So thinking about orientation is a really good example. And one of the things we can do in the classroom. So when you do orientation, you'll have a group of students come in. You know, and when we do international, maybe a smaller group, 20, 30, when you're doing the, the big freshmen, you know, you're doing three, 400 students at a time. But there's no connection in the sense that are they getting, I mean, it's just as easy for them to show up and sleepwalk through a day of orientation. With online, if you build in some of the assessments or discussions, they sort of have to respond. They sort of have, it's like going through those 
you know, driving tutorials we have to do for the university every couple of years. Um, and in some cases, sort of annoying, although I learned a couple of tips every once in a while that might help me. No comment on that for me. But you have to at least pay some attention because you have to sure. pass the test. Sure. Um, so I think that there's some real advantages that we're not getting. Yeah. And yeah, because I was thinking too, like when, when John and I were talking about, well, when we had the in-person orientations, you know, students will come up afterwards for questions. And it's like, well, you could have you know them stay on the call, but they may not feel comfortable because a lot of them, they want to wait until everyone's kind of gone until they have more of that one-on-one yeah. -on -one with you. And because it's really a personal question that's, you know, for them as an individual. So there is going to be a, you know, a lot that we missed out on. Um, but yeah. you're still going to need some kind of connection to the students and some kind of visual. And, and we talked about this at the beginning, or you mentioned, you know, again, Zoom is great or whatever, you know, system you're using, but it's not the same as being in the office and picking up all the cues. Um, you know, when I would work with students, you know, from when they came into the office and they sat down and how they looked and how they were feeling. And some of that just doesn't come across very well. Um, so we'll miss a lot of that richness. But having said that, a lot of stuff can be a lot more efficient than, than before. So to end this on maybe a, a more positive note that has nothing to do with online classes or institutions or anything like that, uh, you've been my, my go-to for giving me the updates on the latest shows to watch. I mean, you got me into Game of Thrones. Um, got me to Umbrella Academy. What what am I what am I missing now? Um, Clone Wars, the last four episodes, I will say, not not the first eight, but the last four episodes of the last season were simply phenomenal. I mean, <laughs> they were amazing, well worth the wait, and and were um, incredible. Um, so really enjoyed those a lot. Um, my son and I are watching um, Lock and Key right now. Really enjoying it. We've got the final two episodes tonight, so we'll, uh, we're really excited to catch those, but that's been a really great series as well. Um, so Clone Wars and Lock and Key are the two uh, bread and butter for us right now. Nice. And then I'll be waiting for season two of Umbrella Academy. And, uh, and Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol, yes. And uh, whenever Picard decides to have season two. Apparently there's going to be another one. They're going to spin off um, Pike. Nice. So I didn't hear about that. So uh, if you didn't hear, you just heard it first from Craig Seal. Yes, they're going to do the original Enterprise with Captain Pike. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for being on, on this interview and, and you, kind Matt. of doing this impromptu interview because we, we did this interview back in December and now we're, you know, it, it was so much has changed since we did that interview. And I feel like there was so much more that we needed to talk about. And I feel like we got that done in this interview. So thank you again, Craig. Happy to help, man. Thank you. Matt, I'm so glad that you got the opportunity to do that last minute interview with Craig because I think it tied so well with even what Leander was talking about earlier in relation to barriers. And as you noted beforehand, Connor's interview in episode eight around transitioning to online learning. And, you know, Craig offered us yet more insights into that and it's something that again we're looking at facing into for the beginning of, of the next academic term so probably something we'll discuss again but I think we've been fortunate now to have two guests who offered really great insights into that and I think it has been a, another really insightful episode and hopefully people will be able to to take a lot from it before we finish up, 
think we should give a shout out and acknowledge two of our friends and two people who have been very kind to appear on this podcast previously and to record videos with us. And that is Dr. Loxley Nibs and Dr. Chantalea Johns, both of whom received their doctorates in recent weeks. So massive congratulations to both. I can only begin to imagine the amount of effort and stress that went into to finalizing that that process but thoroughly deserved a two absolutely stand-up people and fantastic advisors and it's just great that they have uh i suppose formal recognition of uh their of that now so congratulations to you both yeah because think of all the time spent all the years you know spent on this with the classes but then the research and then to officially defend and now to be have that doctor title so chantalia loxley congratulations i mean what an honor what an accomplishment and hopefully you get some time to relax but i know that's probably not going to happen as now we're jumping into orientation and what we're doing for our incoming students but definitely congratulations to you both So we have come to the end of episode 11. Hopefully another useful and enjoyable episode for our listeners. I think there's plenty to take away from today's episode. And as we said earlier, if you have ideas or if there's a topic that you would like us to delve into at a future point in the podcast, please do get in touch. We do love hearing from listeners and you can find us pretty much on all the social media channels we have the two final answers to our question posed at the beginning yes that is correct we have two more answers to the question knowing what you know now what would you go back and tell yourself when you started out in advising and so we asked two of our friends marion gabra and dane zanowski And we will see you on the next episode. Take care, everyone. My name is Marian Gabra. I am the Director of Advising Professional Development and University Studies at UCLA. I am also the Region 9 Professional Development Coordinator until 2020 of October. And if um, I would give myself advice when I first started my advising career, given what I know now, I would encourage myself to really understand the value and impact of advising with regard to student learning and empowerment. And I would share that knowledge with campus partners, with faculty, uh, because it occurred to me fairly early on that not everyone had a clear understanding of the value of academic advising. It's more than just helping students find a major and you know, pick classes. We do so much more than that. And you know, it's important that we give language to the important work that we do and to our invaluable contributions to the university and to student learning. So I would tell myself to read up on advising theory to draft advising syllabi, to 
speak to anyone who would give me a seat at the table to talk about what we do as academic advisors and just how complex, nuanced, and beautiful the practice and the field really is. Hello, my name is Dane Zanowski, and I'm an academic advisor at Temple University, and I've been academic advising for about six years now. And I'd say, knowing what I know now, what would I go back and tell myself when I first started advising? Um, I would definitely tell myself to, as soon as possible, as soon as I started advising, get involved with Nakata, um, get to know the power of the Nakata network uh, through professional development, attend more regional conferences, read conference proposals, do more writing. Um, I feel like after six years, I'm now just getting into all these great things, but I wish I would go back and tell myself, start early, start often, get involved, get to know um, academic advisors outside of your home institution, because um, it's, it's a great resource and you get to know a lot of great people and you get to learn. So it's great. Don't want a complication, complication.